it's time to start unpacking with another episode of the B Word Unpacked, hosted by the phenomenal women of Goodstock Consulting, Kelly, Kim, and Ebony. Well, hello, loves. How have y'all been doing? I feel like we need to check in on each other because 2020 has been anything but gentle. And seriously, it's left us shaken from all ends. But in doing so, there's been some times of quiet in the storm and time to reflect. And in that reflection, I thought it might be good for us to talk about our healing. Now, the first step of any healing process is to first address exactly what it is, like to diagnose what is actually broken. And that, my friends, is the title of this podcast broken. Now, y'all know I, I go deep. Um, I don't try to, but it, it is what it is. But before I do, I want to introduce our guest speaker. This is Dr. Nicole Brathway, and she is an amazing child and adult psychiatrist who is going to help diagnose us from the hop, okay? So, mm. right? <laughs> I got a lot of stuff I need to. Right. Do you have time? Nervous. Right. <laughs> Should I go and lay on my couch? Look, before, right, before we get on her couch, okay, and I'm talking about, I ain't taking my shoes off or nothing, Jesus. Um, but before we start, I figured we could start with a lightning round, you know, because I want to know, ladies, before Dr. Brathwaite tell us that basically what we're doing is completely wrong, um, when you feel broken, what do you typically turn to to cope? Lightning round. Now, it. We can get a ring, maybe maybe you can give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down if it's healthy or not. But um, as we set up this like teleconference session, what do you do? How do you, how do, you do it? What does it look like? Um, and does your family say, yeah, you, you need to go get that looked at? Go ahead, Kelly. We're going to start with you because you know you like to share. I like to share. I like to overshare, hell. Um, <laughs> throughout my life, y'all, honestly, my main coping mechanisms have always been food and then to a lesser extent, alcohol. And I can tell you, I would go in. You know when Kelly's stress level has ratcheted up when I resort to what I call my triple G. And the triple G includes General So's chicken, gelato, and greyhounds. And nothing about that. What's a greyhound? A bus? Oh, the bus? The grapefruit? Ugh. I thought you meant going on a trip. I thought you meant going on a trip. Look no, at that country behind getting on a greyhound. No buses involved, but my right. triple G is just, back in the day, that was a sign like, oh, things are really shaky for Kelly, and I'm coping with all of it, and I can still feel like my arteries clogging up from all of that. Mm. Nowadays, I still rely on the sweets on occasion. I love a good Talenti splurge, but honestly, what makes me feel the best is to go out, be in nature, and just take walks and be by myself. So solo time, introspection, fresh air, green trees, that's what has honestly throughout COVID kept me level and sane. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm not healthy at all. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. The, um, the way I cope is typically to not cope. So I like to do what I call um, hyper duty. So I will have five, six projects that are just kind of um, let me help other people. Mm -hmm. Deflecting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Deflecting. De deflect. Hyper busy. Um, hyper busy. Um, mm -hmm. And, and hyper busy, and then I get mad because I'm hyper busy, and then I'm, mm -hmm. I'm stressed because I'm hyper busy. And, and then she want to yell at us, Kelly, because she's hyper she busy. She want to lash out, <laughs> lash out. <laughs> Explosive, okay? Mm -hmm. Just like, um, yeah, and that's a problem. And I need yeah. somebody to talk to it about. But um, 
Fran, I do the complete opposite. So when I'm feeling like broken, I retreat. I like go into a cocoon. I I really lean into my introverted side. And y'all know I like a good drink. Like Kim. You like your brown liquor. Listen, it's Kim with the cocktails, right? But honestly, when I am broken, I don't even want to drink because I equate having a good drink with a good time. And I don't feel like I'm in a good time or a good space. So I get in my bed and I do my best to shrink. So Mm -hmm. I don't drink, I shrink. My voice, my presence, my my aura, my everything. I get in my bed, I put my weighted blanket on and I binge watch yourself. Yes, and I binge watch TV to try to get into someone else's world. But I completely disconnect. And I know it's unhealthy because I have a family and I ignore them yeah, until mm-hmm. I'm ready to come out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that Nicole. Oh, I don't, I mean, we all, we all handle stress differently. You're not binge drinking and you're not just like wandering out of your home out into the streets. And so there are some aspects to everything that, that you're doing that's healthy one, because you're still here you're still functioning. You still wake up a little the bit. next day. I, I mean, mean a little to, bit. To, to an extent, you're still, you know, you're still getting things done. And at some point you come back out and talk to your family. I would be more concerned if the, the isolation or the disconnection or the shutting down was over a longer period of time, like days or weeks. I mean, I think, you know, one for me, I've had to kind of recognize what stress feels like. So I, I feel anxiety and stress in my body. And I, I think in general, as black women, we tend to feel our pain and we tend to feel our stress. And partly because I, I really feel like the burden of the world is on our shoulders. Absolutely. And so that that heaviness, it, you know, we get the headaches and the neck aches and the back aches and the, the nausea. And yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, even like grinding. Been hurting. Your teeth, my teeth my in the teeth. past like six months have shifted. The front two ones, I've told them this a couple times now. I'm like, I went to the dentist and he was like, yep, your teeth are overlapping. And wow. it's because you're grinding them at night. Exactly. I'm a and then he's like, do you want some Botox in your jaw? I was like, nah, I'm, I'm cool with that. But I'll take the dental guard. But it, it just was shocking to realize how much stress I've been carrying. Exactly. To the in your mouth. Wow. I, I, I wear a guard at night. And I, mm-hmm. when I'm anxious or stressed, I grind my teeth so much that I've like chewed through the plastic. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like that, that's how bad it is. So, I mean, one thing is to one, recognize because often we'll come home and we're irritable, we're frustrated, we're angry, we're constantly hungry or we're not eating at all or mm-hmm. everything hurts or everything frustrates us. And it's not until we sit down and reflect that we're like, it's because of what happened today. It's because of what's happened over this last month or six months. And so, you know, one thing is one just to identify how your stress comes out. How, how does your body communicate with you? And so that, I mean, that's an ongoing process. It, is it emotional? Is it psychological? Is it physical? Is, you know, how, how are you experiencing your stress? And then once I've identified it and I realize that I'm struggling, I'm very intentional about how I manage my stress. I'm very intentional about what I let in. So, Like I was just, you know, as we were just kind of talking about, I am not going to go back on social media today. I can't, it's too much. I'm already, I already know that I'm overwhelmed. I was feeling nauseous all day today. So that for me is a signal that I'm, I'm on that precipice. I'm about to fall over. So I need to take 10 steps back. So tonight I'm going to color. 
I have all of these African adult coloring books and I love them and they're just full of beautiful black women. And for some reason, like I just derive so much joy from coloring with using like different, I have like 50 different color brown and I just like color beautiful brown women. And it just, it brings me so much joy. And after I put my kids to bed, I just, I shut it out. I put on music and I, and I color or I watch a movie that has nothing to do with reality that I know mm. will make me laugh that I, I don't that. have to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's what I watch. <laughs> is good but you know i just i have to going i'm already on that that cusp i am intentional like i'm not answering my phone when you call i'm not responding to that text because Mm -hmm. i I recognize that my spirit is heavy and i need to i need to release it and and even when in realizing when you're when my spirit is heavy i don't want to feed that to anyone else so that's another reason why i go into my cocoon because i don't want to be responsible for that energy out in the world so let me kind of reconcile it by myself and then i'll join y'all once I can get this thing and right. That's why I think I get the problem though. When I feel heavy, it's like, well, let me help and try to fight these fights. And then it's like, and then what I what I find myself is I get a lot of people call me about their um mm-hmm. a lot of friends that um and I and mm-hmm. I I love that they feel like they can confide in me. But um like this past week when I was covering the ICU, I'm like I had people actually, you know, passing away. And whenever you're calling and tell me about uh, things that happen in your life, I want to be open and receptive, but you really feel like, like Iyanla said one time, um, an emotional trash can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't take that all in, Ab. I mean, yeah. Kim, your whole shrinking thing, the food thing is kind of similar because the more you eat, the fuller you feel, the fuller you feel, the less conscious you become, the less exactly. conscious you become the more you sleep and the same mm-hmm. with the alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just like you're numbing, you're numbing, numbing. stuff away, basically. Yep. Um, which is intense, but which is so real. Y'all, mm-hmm. let's go to the B-side. I know, I know. we <laughs> haven't even introduced her. We just talking. And let's go to the B-side. Welcome, Welcome to, to the B-side. Now, Dr. Nicole, we have completely, uh, as you can see, we unloaded on you. Um, <laughs> can you tell the viewers exactly who you are, what you do, and where we can kind of find you after we again unload on you for the second go. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again for having me. This is um, this is an honor. You ladies are incredible, amazing, like full stop. Um, but I, I am a child and adult psychiatrist. I um, I have a consulting company I started a few years ago called Well Minds Consulting Company, um, and then I also am senior vice president of a telepsychiatry company. It's called Insight and Regroup. It's the the largest telepsychiatry company in the country. Um, and you can find me um, online. Um, my my website is wellmindsconsulting.com um, or you can find me on social media. My handles are Dr. Dr. Nicole CB. So now I know we, we kind of jumped into some conversation before. We, I felt like we were really about to lay it down. But what kills me every time in a movie, whenever we start talking about therapy or going to a therapist, it always starts with, Tell me about your mother. <laughs> Tell me about the relationship with your father. I mean, how true is that? I mean, like how our brokenness, and I know that's what we're talking about, how rooted is that in our family familial experiences? Um, Even so down just, to the womb, I guess. Right. No, I mean, not just our mother, but every family experience. I mean, especially as Black women, we recognize that there, there is generational trauma. Like there mm-hmm. are just certain things that just seem to carry through but also that black people have just been through some things. And that 
you know, we're, we're not built, we're not meant to be in a chronic state of survival. We're not meant to be in this chronic state of stress. And so because Black people have to endure so much, our stress response is always activated. And then that increased activation and the cortisol and the adrenaline and the chronic stress, it leads to this chronic inflammation and chronic disease, which puts us at risk for everything that's leading us to die from COVID, diabetes, heart mm. disease, um, obesity, but then also it puts us at risk for anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, and so, you know, we have, we're dealing with parents and family members who are literally being traumatized every time they walk out the house. Turning on the television for a black person is traumatizing. Going on to social media and seeing yet another beautiful black body being murdered is traumatizing. And so, absolutely what our family experiences impacts our development. Also what we experience impacts our development. But, you know, to say it's only just the mother, I mean, women, we always get the blame. Like we're no matter, no matter what, we're hard. I I I mean, right, exactly. It just, we're always blamed, but it's not, it's not just the mother. It's never just the mother. It's this culmination of life experiences but also understanding that being black in America means that you're more likely to experience discrimination and that's a risk factor and that's mm-hmm. a risk factor for many things. And so, which is why I'm so glad we're talking about therapy because frankly, we all benefit from it. We all need it because we've all experienced some level of trauma in this country. Amen to that. Yeah. So let's take a little bit further into the science behind what you just talked about, Dr. Nicole. So epigenetics is the study of changes in the gene function that do not involve changes in the DNA sequence, with the hypothesis being that an individual's experience might alter the cells and behavior of their children and their grandchildren. So maybe you can blame it all on your mama or your grandmama. So in animals, <laughs> exposure to stress or cold or high-fat diets has been shown to trigger metabolic changes in later generations And some studies have found that in humans, when they're exposed to traumatic conditions, among them the children of Holocaust survivors, among them the children of the survivors of slavery, aka all of us Black folk, they lead to subtle biological and health changes among the children. And so can you unpack that a little bit more, not just some of these epigenetic changes that occur within the individual, but particularly as black and brown communities, how you start to recognize what might be resulting from that past trauma and how you can potentially start to combat that in your present state. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, it, and it's so hard because it, it requires the individual education and understanding, but also the collective community education and understanding. And I think we're, we're under this impression that black people are supposed to suffer. Well, my grandma suffered, my mom suffered. That's just kind of what, what's expected of us. And so we have to change the narrative. We don't all have to suffer. As a matter of fact, we should not be suffering. I mean, we're, we're excellent, right? We, we are amazing individuals. We are an amazing group of people. Why is this this expectation that we're supposed to bear the burden of this country? And so that has to change. The expectation that joy is, is what's supposed to be in our future versus suffering. Um, and because of that, it's like, I think we, we passed on that, that pain and that pessimism. Um, and so there, you know, we just need to completely change the way that we're seeing ourselves, our future, our children. Um, you know, they're kind of like, well, it was done to me, so I have to, to do it to you. Um, and so, the, you know, again, the first thing is, uh, you know, achieving and claiming joy, not mm-hmm. pain, and recognizing that 
being irritable or being angry is not healthy and that there are ways to manage that. Being stressed all the time should not be the normal. And there's ways that we can manage that individually and collectively as a family. And it is not shameful to experience mental health problems. It is not embarrassing. It is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength to be able to recognize and admit that we're struggling and that we need support. And so, so much has to change. I think maybe the one positive, if there's anything positive to come out of COVID is that we're universally recognizing that we need help, that Mm. this is stressful. And more people are saying like, I, you know what, mental health is a major issue. And so at Mm -hmm. least as a community, we're willing to talk about it and it's starting to be normalized because we're all in this in a way. And, you know, everybody says we're in it together we're in it together differently than, than differently. they are. But, right, exactly. Yes, but <laughs> yes. I think the thing about COVID too, Dr. Nicole, is that not only are we learning to recognize it, but we're learning how to give each other grace because yes. I don't think that that existed previously, but now folks are like, uh, why don't we reschedule that for tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Because we recognize that everybody is really going through Itch. it. Right. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm hoping that that sustains, though, after COVID. I know COVID will be here for a while, but I'm hoping that these hard lessons and hard truths that we've learned don't dissipate once all is clear, right? Because we've learned Mm -hmm. some some really great things, including the grace and space that we're giving people. But yeah, I'm worried. And they're not only subjective findings, but they're objective findings, too. So what we're seeing is that there's less preterm births that is happening now in COVID. Mm. And people are trying to, yeah. And this is not only in the United States, but globally. And the mm-hmm. question is, is it because women were not being stressed out with having to go to work and being on their feet when they're eight, nine months pregnant? Um, what, what does that do to the body? Because, you know, as, as Kelly was saying, you know, there's things that happen on the genetic level. Because mm-hmm. um, there were studies, there was a study out of um, Canada. I want to say it was back in the, was it like in the 70s or 80s where there was a massive snowstorm? And for 40 days, one county was without electricity and the other had electricity. And so they studied the, the mothers, um, the babies that were born to see what's the differences. And those kids for decades later had learning disabilities. The ones that were, the moms were under stress, learning disabilities, mm-hmm. autism, cancer formation. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but the methylization or the turning on and off of genes um, that happens as, as the um, children were developing. So it's really interesting. Now, my question though is, okay, so we, we know the mom, I can understand that if the mom is stressed out, and the turning off and turning on of genes and the hormone shifts that literally influences how the baby's body is developing. If she has high serotonin or high dopamine, like what does that mean for that development? But what about absent fathers, right? Um, we, we know that there's been this shift away from the family unit and it's changing and it, and it kind of looks differently. And in fact, you know, the, as far as the number of single black mothers in the United States from 1990 to 2018, in 2018, there were about 4 million black families in the United States with a single mother. And that has increased from 1990s to about 3.4 uh, million families with, um, with single mothers, right? Let me say that again. The number of single mothers in 2018 we're about 4 million short from what we have now. And in 2011, it was reported that 72% of black babies were born to unmarried mothers. Um, as of 2015, at 77.3%, black Americans have the highest rate of non-marital births among Native Americans. So the question is, 
you know, when we're, when we're thinking about starting families, um, is it better or worse to stay in a relationship, for instance, if their marriage doesn't work in order to raise kids? So stay for the kids. To stay for the kids. Because back in the day, you know, you, you hear about your grandparents and your great-grandparents and you find out you got cousins of a cousin of a cousin that we didn't know this family. Now all of a sudden we're on uh, Ancestry.com and all of us related. Um, so, I mean, what is, what's better? Is it better to stay or better to go? And that, you know, I, I was raised by a single mother, but I was also raised by a village. And so that, you know, that's such a, a challenging question because it depends on what that home life looks like. And I always tell people that healthy brains are built, they're not born. So we have to feed into children what we want to see grow and develop. And you know, our brains, like muscles in our body, it's a use-dependent organ. And so if you are giving a child a lot of love and support and challenging them intellectually and, and helping them build resilience, that higher functioning cortical part of their brain will develop. But if they're in an environment where every time they come home, there's conflict and there's arguing or there's neglect and no one is loving them or no one is kissing them or there's constant tension, then what develops is the the lower part of our brain, the survival part of our brain. And then what's not developed is the thinking, the cortical functioning part of our brain. And so if a child is in a really unhealthy environment, whether because of overt abuse or neglect, and sometimes neglect is even worse than abuse, it is not healthy because that child will have to constantly be in fight, flight, or freeze. And they're using their, utilizing their brainstem and not their prefrontal cortex. But if it's a situation where the parents have found a way to communicate effectively and co-parent, whether that's living together or not, you know, that's healthy. So it really depends on what's happening in the home. If you cannot cohabitate in a way that's supportive and healthy, then it's more detrimental than not. Because, you know, again, as Black communities, we often live in multi-generational households. We often have the neighbor checking in or cousin so-and-so checking in. And so you can build a really loving and supportive village around the child, even if the the father figure is not there. I had multiple father figures. I had uncles who spoiled me and loved me to pieces. I had a grandfather who like literally could not tell me no. And so even though my father may not have been there every single day and wasn't always present, I had a tremendous amount of love. Um, and so I still was able to grow and I still was able to receive all that I needed to become a healthy adult. I would have I'd rather that than living in a situation where my parents couldn't get along or they were yelling or arguing all the time. Question, you know what, what, about, what, about, what about in the middle? What if there's a um, relationship where they're not arguing all the time and they're not lovey-dovey all the time? They literally just exist. Almost, they just exist. Like, um, you know, does that does that shaping your mind what love looks like? Is it detrimental in any way? Um, and and how how do you navigate that? Right. And that, I mean, that, that's, again, it's, it's so, cha it's challenging. There was, um, so there's this like old school um, child psychologist named Winnicott, and he came up with this theory of the good enough mother. And so basically he said that you just need to be just good enough. So you don't need to give a child everything because then they're narcissistic spoiled and they expect the world to be, and we, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And then right. we know a few at all. Right. We, we know a few at all. Right. Exactly. And you don't need to be the mother that's never there because then that child never learns love. There, you know, there has to be disappointments so that a child can learn to forgive and grow. There has to be periods when you tell them no because they have to learn how to be self-sufficient. And so, you know, there's that there's a wide middle where, you know, like under the, the bell curve, that that area is pretty wide. And so even if it's not a perfect home, but it's overall healthy. And if the adults aren't necessarily showing each other love, but they're able to respond to that child in a healthy way, that's still relatively healthy. Like, but you know, it still has challenges. I when I, I first got married, my husband's parents they were together for 30 years, loved each other. He always told me like he can remember coming home and they would be in the shower and his mother would be rubbing his dad's back and like they like, but forever, like they were best friends. Yeah. I didn't see that. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't see those healthy relationships. And so I remember I didn't when we then, thank God. <laughs> I don't want to see that. But I don't think I want to see that. I don't think he saw it, but he knew about it. Like he, but he recognized like that's that's yeah, the kind that's of love, love that they have. Like it's love. But I and so I remember when we first got married, every argument, I'm like, well, we're getting divorced. Like that's it. Like this is over. Mm-hmm. He was like, it's just an argument. It doesn't mean we're getting divorced. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I didn't know. Put this bag back. I should have just leave. But like, so I had to grow, right? Because I hadn't seen healthy relationships in that way. So. You know, for me, it was a challenge. Those first few years of marriage, I had to learn. I had to figure it out. But I, I was, I had the resilience and I had a, a partner who was willing to be patient. Um, so, you know, like, again, like there's, there's still those challenges. But if, you, if you're able to grow and, and learn, you can work through it. Right. I want to go back to the generational curses. I think so often, especially as Black and Brown people, we don't talk about mm-hmm. the things that are really probably shaping who we are, mm-hmm. um, especially if they're hurtful, because we've been taught that you respect your parents, right? You respect your grandparents. I don't care what you say, how you say it. I still have to respect you. Um, I have to obey you and I can't defy you, right? Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't give my mom boundaries. That's disrespectful. So how would you advise someone to start that conversation with a parent or with a grandparent because a lot of us are raised by grandparents. How would, how would you advise them to even start that conversation? Because I would find it so difficult mm-hmm. to tell my parents that they did, that I felt wronged given everything they've done. And then layer on top of that, if you're Black parents or anything like many other Black parents, mm-hmm. the minute you dare start to do that, they're going to whip the Bible out on you. Honor thy mother and thy father. They're going to start okay. quoting Bible verses on you. So And probably whip your ass, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never too old. Never too old. Never. Look, I come from a different family. You think because you would say that? Oh, Listen, I love my mom and daddy to life, um, but now we have a relationship on, and of which, so let me say this, I say this often, um, but I am grateful for growth because now I can see, like today I just now showed Kim and um, Nicole a, a videotape of when uh, my cousin sent me a videotape when we were young, and my dad is the, the age I am right now, and so like looking back, it's like, oh, okay, I can... I see you guys as being kids who are trying to raise kids and you mm-hmm. made mistakes and, and you're human. And I don't have to put you on this pedestal of, Oh, you were supposed to be my mom and dad. It's like, no, you're, you're Kenneth and Mary. That's where you, you know, and, and 
you know, when, when y'all met me, when you gave birth to me, you were broken. And, mm-hmm. and so you were trying to heal what was already struggling in your life. So now I can, I can forgive you. But now I think because of the way I was brought up, though, I see us now as not necessarily as, um, yes, they're my parents, but I don't feel like this is a mother-child or, or father-child relationship. Really? Yes. I am still very much in a mother-child relationship. It was different. I mean, but, but, but I had a good relationship with my mom on that front, but the, with my father, it was always honor thy father and thy mother that the days may be long, long. land, which the Lord thy God go. giveth See. thee. Look at we that. Kelly went back into it. Post-traumatic no, stress. No, it's not an accident. But we can, have, we can have a conversation as adults. It's like, if, if there's something that um, I don't necessarily agree with, I can say, you know, I don't really agree with that. But it, and I don't know, um, but it's, it's mainly, I feel that the, the ties are shifting now. And it will be another shift at some point when they get older of now, now I've got to be the one to take care of you, you know? Mm-hmm. So just, I guess it's just what stage of this transition. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what do you think, Dr. Nicole? <laughs> so, I mean, I think, what, you know, if these are like deeply, these are deeply held beliefs and a lot of like deep seated pain. So this is not a conversation that you can have without preparation. So whether it's preparation with your friends and processing what happened or preparation, again, preferably with a therapist, because before you go into that conversation with a parent or a sibling or whatever, where you have this loving but challenging relationship, because they're, you know, like there's this this balance, you have to be ready for that. And you have to understand why you're having that conversation. Like if you're going into that conversation to give an apology, that may not happen. So Mm -hmm. you have to be prepared for that. But if you're going into that conversation because you need to speak your piece or because you need to set boundaries in your current life and you need things to change, then, you know, that's what you can control. But expecting that person to atone for what they did, a lot of people walk away very disappointed because our parents, one, didn't recognize it as a problem. And two, it may be too painful for them to admit Mm -hmm. that what they did hurt us. Um, But, you know, my mother lives with me now. I'm an only child and she was very sick. So she lives with me. And multiple times we've had to have discussions about boundaries. Like these are my children. Mm-hmm. not your children. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to have a discussion about when I am disciplining my children, I don't need you to cut in. I don't need yes. you to, to step in. back up. Right, exactly. And I also don't need you to undermine everything. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. You know what grandmas do. Yes. Right. Exactly. Now you got boundaries, Kim. Now you got boundaries? Well, no. So I don't. So my rule is, or my mom's rule is, it's my house. So whatever I say goes. So when she's in that mood, we just don't go to her house. Like, I mean, I, I'm okay with that because it is your house, but we at my house now. So. Yeah, Dr. Nicole, what you said, I think the preparation piece, my therapist told me something very similar. I mean, from her perspective, before you dive in those conversations, what she told me was ask yourself five whys. Why do you want to have that conversation? Then why after you've answered it and you do that five times? And then she's, then the exercise, my homework was after you've written your five whys, then you write exactly what you would want to say. And to be honest, sometimes, whether that's with your parent or with anybody who you need to have a challenging conversation with, and sometimes even just the act of writing it, I didn't even have to have the conversation. It turns out I just needed to like 
get that out. out of me. I needed to release it. So in some instances, after I've gone through my homework, I've had the conversation, but there's been times too when I've just been like, okay, I, I'm good. I can let that go. Mm-hmm. I got a question then because, okay, I, I can't remember where I read it, but it was um, saying basically the different ways that people need to forgive other people. And some mm-hmm. people need to hear you say, I'm sorry. Some people need to see you do something differently. What's, what are the other ways? Um, Maybe if it's auditory, ask, seeing it, someone, feel it. Someone needs to ask you to forgive them. Like mm. instead of, you know what I mean? But um, I am very, and some people don't need to have acknowledgement if, if something has been done wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those persons. Um, <laughs> no, I need to, I need to, not only, it's not the, um, I need to hear you say it. I need to know that you actually, you are remorseful for it. Like that, that you're, that you are going to let that happen again. You know what I mean? Like, so if that goes back to the control that Dr. Nicole was just talking about. You can't control that. You can't expect you from other people. You can't expect them to be remorseful just because that's what your interpretation of the situation is. They might be like remorseful. You owe mm-hmm. me remorse. You never know. Now, okay, now, okay, but here's the thing. There's, there's different stages of wronging people. If I stepped on your shoe, okay, my bad. If, but there are some things that are, that are damnable. Mm-hmm. Talking to, okay, talking to black community, pedophilia that we don't ever talk about. Mm. Yep. Do a moment of silence on that one. Damnable. 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 Inexcusable. 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 Now, do we forgive if someone has not asked to be forgiven? And my answer is absolutely not. I'm going to yield to the doctor on that one because I I am not sensitive to that. Hmm. So forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting, though. I mean, forgiveness is so that you can sleep through the night. Forgiveness mm-hmm. is so that you can wake up without having holding on to that hatred, right? Because when we are holding on to that resentment and hatred, that other person has no idea that we are holding on to that. They have no idea that this Living hatred, you. right? They, they, we, they don't care what's eating through our heart and our soul. Right. So that forgiveness is not for them. That's for me. That's for us. And I, you know, so many patients have been through that experience of so-and-so hurt them and they shared it with a family member and they didn't believe them or they dismissed them or like, well, why did you wear that? Or well, what did you do? And, you know, there is that resentment and there's that anger. And it's like, how, how dare they? Even if you were to go back today, 20 years later, the answer may not change because people still don't want to face reality. They don't want to deal with it, whether because it happened to them or they just can't admit it and they don't want to hear it. But you still have to live your life, right? Like you still have to figure out how to get past that so that not every single relationship you have triggers that negative memory or leads to that flashback or it impacts your ability to be intimate. This forgiveness is for you like that. And like, like I said, that... If they hurt you to that extent, they're they're damaged beyond repair. So there's nothing that I would expect from them ever because anything that they put out into the world will be unhealthy. So it's better off to not have that communication and to not even look for that. Sorry, because it won't happen. So it's more of like, what internal work can you do? Right. Mm. I give it up to them though, because ain't no. I mean, that right there would be a hard a hard stop. Mm-hmm. I'm to kind of go through that, but. 
So, you know, yeah. Ed, what you're talking about, it, it speaks about childhood experiences and trauma. Mm -hmm. And so the whole concept, the whole study of adverse childhood experiences mm -hmm. has been gaining a lot of mainstream traction lately. Some of the data show that um, over 70% of Americans have experienced at least one ACE, they're called ACEs, but at least mm -hmm. one adverse childhood experiences. Clearly these ACEs impact things like you discussed earlier in the conversation, diabetes, smoking, uh, early onset of sexual behavior, mm -hmm. uh, increased likelihood of HIV AIDS or other sexually transmitted infections. And I can just go on and on and on right. in terms of adverse childhood experiences. So I'm gonna speak to a few data points and then ask you, Dr. Nicole, to share your reflections. And so, children who experience child abuse and neglect are approximately nine times more likely to become in, involved in criminal activity, nine times more likely. Yeah. Abused children are 25% more likely to experience teen pregnancy. Abused teens are more likely to engage in sexual risk-taking behavior, putting them at greater risk for STDs. And one more data point I'll share, about 30% of abused and, and neglected children will later abuse their own children, continuing the cycle of abuse. And so my question to you, uh, Dr. Nicole, is if you can unpack a little bit the, the, whole, the whole theory behind adverse childhood experiences, how it impacts us, and how we can become more aware of what those ACEs might be. And again, what are some coping me mechanisms or strategies strategies that people can use to move beyond them. Yeah, and that, I mean, there's, and there have been a number of studies even since that original study in the 90s, there was a study, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, and there was a study in like 2010 in Philadelphia, where they were saying, all right, so the original study was mostly with middle income white people. Um, and they were, they found that if they experience these negative yeah. things in their home, they have all these bad outcomes. What happens if you go to Philadelphia where 40% of the people in Philly live below the poverty line? Mm -hmm. And what they found was that don't even, you don't even need to get into the home. Are you walking through a community that feels wow. unsafe? Have you been bullied? Have you been in the foster care system? Have you experienced racism or discrimination? That experience of racism and discrimination is equally as damaging as being beaten or experiencing wow. significant physical or sexual abuse. The same reaction happens in the body. So again, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, going into survival mode, that fight, flight, or freeze, that happens when you experience racism as a 10-year-old in school and you recognize that you're being targeted because you're one of the only black kids in the classroom or because you're, you're struggling with anxiety or depression, but they're labeling you as deviant. Mm -hmm. That racism is damaging, just like the, the, the violence that you experience when you walk through the, your community or the domestic violence you witness at home. And so, you know, again, what happens is that every time you have one of these ACEs, your body is like, oh shoot, I'm in danger. So I'm going to shut down the thinking, I'm going to shut down the higher functioning, and I'm going to exist like right now I have to survive. And so we have people walking through life where every other moment, every other day, they are like, you know, tensing in up. Survival. And, right, they're in survival. You know, we, we've all had that experience walking into a toxic work situation and you immediately find your, your body changing. The way you respond to people, your muscles are telling, and you, I mean, some of us, we, you recognize like you're walking around like this, like your shoulders are touching and it's not until you like let them down that you even realize that they were that tense. And so you were existing in survival mode. And, and what happens when 
you know, if a lion or, you know, something was to run in the room right now, your, your heart rate goes up, your muscles tense, your blood pressure goes up, you know, again, the cortisol and adrenaline increase. What happens if you're living like that for hours, weeks, years? What is that doing to our bodies, to our spirits? That is so unhealthy. So... And imagine that starting when you're three. My, my son's first experience with racism was when he was three. Wow. So, and, and it's also important to recognize that these ACEs, trauma is cumulative. So mm-hmm. what happened when he was three is laying the foundation for whatever other experiences he's had. And each one of those is putting like another ACE, another notch, and it increases the risk. One thing that I want to share, Dr. Nicole, um, at an organization that I previously worked at, the staff did the ACEs self-assessment, and then as a collective, we reviewed what the scores were. So how many individuals had two ACEs, three ACEs, Mm -hmm. six ACEs? And there's something really humbling and just kind of leveling of the playing field when you can see that within my organization of 45 people, 80% have experienced three plus ACEs. It really, back to the grace piece, it makes you take pause before you pop off on somebody because Mm -hmm. it makes you recognize, oh my goodness, like Mm -hmm. they have potentially dealt with X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so to the folks who are listening, that ACEs self-assessment, it's available online. It's a relatively easy quiz or or assessment to take. And again, it can be a really good team building Mm -hmm. exercise because it makes you see that a lot of people got a lot of trauma, y'all. And so that the Karen that you work with really isn't a bitch. She's just troubled. She's traumatized. <laughs> She's troubled. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but it, it really, it, you know, it, it does bring up this idea of, you know, we, we pride ourselves and we've made it, right? Um, we mm-hmm. went through all this trauma as kids and as, as crazy as it was, we'd end up in jail. We ain't, we ain't shoot nobody, you know, but we do carry that brokenness with us. And so the question for the group is, how does your brokenness, like, what does it manifest? What does it look like? Because like, for, for instance, uh, again, we just now got through watching one of my, um, my childhood clips and I might have to, maybe I can get Vaughn to like splice a little bit. Cause I keep on talking about it. Maybe we'll put it at the end. <laughs> but, um, but in the clip, um, I tell people all the time, I, I didn't, I don't view myself as being beautiful, that um, my older sister, she was the pretty one. I was the smart one. My little sister was the funny one, the interjected one, the, the one to fill up the room. And, um, and looking at that clip, literally, I said, when my sister, my uncle asked my sister to describe herself, and um, he was like, are you, you going to be one of the queens? And I was like, well, she did win prettiest and junior a junior, you know, and um, just to highlight that that's who she is, right? And so growing up, I think because I didn't want to view myself in that way, um, even my need for a relationship, a, an emotional relationship has never really been there. And that, and like, I have to have you. Um, it's, it's weird because I've always been in relationships but it's never been an emotional, I gotta, I gotta have an emotional tie or I feel broken without this relationship, you know? Um, and, and I'm trying to heal that part of whatever is broken that makes me not um, necessarily have to have someone. That, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But is that broken yeah. strength? I don't know. But I think, but. I think it's strange because you're always in a relationship. Yeah, but it's different because, okay, for instance, like some people I see in relationships where I look at it, I'm like, 
you know good hair well that ain't good is is not good and when and and like you know nicole when you were saying earlier um dr cole um the with the when you and your husband first got into arguments you're like oh i'm gone um i get that if 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 i see any little we can let this one go um there's there's billions of people in this world and and i'm trying to grow out of that though into need to be open enough to have to need someone in that space um so yeah, but so I but I don't know if that's a if that's a weakness or a strength, and that's I think the problem with being with the brokenness brokenness because it's your normal. Mm-hmm. So how do you know if it's a strength or a weakness? But I think the strength is that you're acknowledging that that's an area where you need to grow, and what you're saying is like I can't be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like I I don't I am not comfortable being vulnerable or opening up and letting people get in close enough where I can say that like I need you or. I'm connected to you or I'd be overly distraught if you left. And so that's, you know, so you're recognizing that that's an area of growth. So who, I mean, we all need to grow. Like they're, they're literally, I don't care if you had the perfect upbringing, you have flaws. It just is what it is. And when we bring two people together who had two different life experiences, there's going to be some level of conflict. It's just a matter of how, how much are you willing to compromise and are you willing to, to take a step back and, and self-reflect and say, this is where I, I need to work on. I still struggle saying sorry. My husband will say sorry, and I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> so, but that's right. I, 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 sorry, not I am my only child, and my grandparents gave me everything, so I never had to apologize because yeah. was, I'm not I, never, wrong. I never did wrong, so <laughs> I don't see what the problem is, but I need to grow, right? Like, that's something I need to work on. Leo, ain't you? You're a Leo. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Pisces, but... Me too! <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I like I need to grow. Like that, like that's that's not my strength. And so, you know, but but the fact is that you're willing to acknowledge it. You're able to say, like, I have this deficit. You know, what else could we ask for? Right. What else could you expect? Right. I would say my brokenness has probably manifested itself into um I'm a Libra, since we're talking about zodiac signs, and I am loyal to a fault. And that's when right. I am for you, I am for you, and I want to give you everything I can to see you grow and be great. But then I over, um, I get a little too committed to it, and it's not my life. And that's when I realize I'm being controlling, right? And so I burn myself out trying to control your life because I always want things to be right, and I want things to be. I want things to be peaceful and mellow and everyone to be good. But then I get tired because I'm working to make sure everyone is good. Hey, do you come? You're the wind. The wind. I'm the wind. You know what, kid? No. A wind that turned into a hurricane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you cut people off, off. There's yes. been some yes. time like Kim. You know this person. And we nope. need to do this to move these pawns around so we can nope. so we can make sure we nope. get this, this, and this done. Mm-mm. And she's like, um, no, I sent them an email. I sent them a text message eight years ago, and they never responded. And I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I have no gray area with my feelings. Either I'm with you, I'm, like, I'm not with you. I'm not I'm, against you. I'm just not with you. I'm and like, if I'm not with you, I don't have time for you. Can just one, if I just said one no, no. If you wrong me, if you wrong my friends, somebody I love, 
I'm with you no more. Yeah. I'm that person. That's loyal to a fault because mm-hmm. these people did not do anything to me, but you don't like my sister, so now I can't like you. <laughs> you better not even talk to me. You better not talk to me. <laughs> I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it, Kim. I know. It's a strength that can be overworked. It, it, it can be overworked. Fair enough. Well, I'm a Capricorn, and I think most folks know that Capricorns are very just goal-oriented and kind of task-driven. You, we like to, to tick a box. And one of the things that I've had to come to understand is how com- the, the saying, comparison is the thief of joy or the enemy of contentment. And so to this day, I have to remind myself to stop considering comparing my actions and my success to other people Mm. and to to compare myself to my own successes, my own barometer of accomplishment. And this goes back to, I mean, hell, probably elementary school, middle school. If I got an A, why didn't I get an A plus? Mm -hmm. If I'm student council vice president, why am I not student council president? President. If I'm in the National Honor Society, why am I not the president of the National Honor Society? It was just like every single thing I ticked, it was just, I became a um, Peace Corps director at 32. Why didn't I do it at 28? Like every accomplishment always became a, well, why didn't you do it sooner, better, better, quicker, faster? (laughs) And so, I mean, thank goodness I've invested a lot of money in therapy and I've kind of started (laughs) to work past some of these issues and what therapy helped me to realize was the thought patterns, right? And so my therapist was always like, stop. When you start to experience these thoughts, is what you're experiencing true? Like, that's the first thing she always stops me and like, is what you're saying about yourself right now true? Mm-hmm. Unpack that for me. And then just also the recognition that you're thinking like that, that you're spiraling out or going down a rabbit hole helps you to be like, oh, Kelly, pull it right back on it. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and I say this no shade, but I feel like collectively on this call right now, all of our average is probably the standard person's excellent. And so it's just like, let me just rat, you know, some days let me ratchet back to average. Yeah. You know, it doesn't always have to be A plus <laughs> plus, but that's probably been one of my life's greatest struggles, just this yeah. constant comparison. Even when people might look at my life and think it's enviable, I'm constantly looking over there and saying, well, what haven't I, what haven't I accomplished? Huh. Which, that's a crazy cycle. It's How cycle. many of us have had a conversation in our head with somebody else and then get ourselves so pissed off and worked up? So when I get home, but in my head, we had the conversation and we did not. So I'm already worked up for what this is about to be. <laughs> look, rebuttal and everything. Crazy, yeah. crazy. So Dr. Nicole, we've just laid out three issues. All the <laughs> issues. You know, unpack Six some it. of this for us. My crazy <laughs> self-comparison to right. other people. Right. Kim's kind of obsessive loyalty to the end, ride or die right. to yes. the bitter ends. Mm-hmm. You know, Ebony's relationship pieces. What's your take on what we just shared? I mean, I feel like... There, you know, it's like a job interview. Like, you know, what what are your weaknesses? Well, my weakness is that I'm just a I'm such a hard worker. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, but so both our strengths and our weaknesses, we can utilize those. And I mean, let's let's also be honest. Being black women in the fields that we're in we always had to outdo everyone else to be seen as average or half as good. So Mm. some of what we're doing and some of the extremes that we've gone to were out of necessity. Sure, it may be a personality trait, but it's like we didn't get here 
because we were average. We got here because nine times out of 10, we worked harder than most everybody else in the room and we were smarter than them, but weren't acknowledged as that. And so Mm -hmm. I do think that again, like being black, particularly being a black woman comes with very specific challenges that other people don't understand. And to become a physician and, you know, even be seen as a peer means that we're already better than most people. And I, you know, and I don't mean to sound conceited, but the fact is that they, they actively try to weed us out. Like they're, you know, they don't want us here. And so we've had to prove ourselves. And so I think, you know, everything that you guys are saying, their defense mechanisms, their ways to protect ourselves, their, their ways to, for us to feel safe being in often really unsafe and uncomfortable and toxic environments. They're, they're out of necessity. They're because we're often the only one and we have to do whatever we need to do to survive. But at the same time, again, you know, like the AA, the first thing they say is like, hi, my name is Nicole and I'm a, you know, like you have to acknowledge it first. And if you're not even able to do that, then there's no room for growth. And we've all articulated, like, these are my challenges and this is where I need to grow. And so again, even saying that and recognizing it and being able to to laugh about it because humor is a great defense mechanism. It means that we're all managing in relatively healthy ways. And it's just a, a matter of staying focused and being intentional about working on those things. So I have to sometimes like grit my teeth and I am sorry, even if I don't want to say it. And it is so hard for me to work on it. But if I really do want to grow and I want to become a better role model for my children and a better partner for my husband, I have to be willing to be uncomfortable and I have to be willing to kind of, again, be vulnerable and and work on these areas that I know are challenging for me. Is there a little bit about survivor's remorse like I think that's what I do I never think like I've worked so hard so I deserve here I'm always thinking so many people helped me get here I have to make sure I'm giving back going back doing more being humble what and I believe it's survivor's remorse or survivor's guilt and again that I do I really feel like that's more unique to us because Mm -hmm. we you know a lot of um a lot of and I, I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound hard. So there are mediocre people. There are me- so there are often mediocre white men mm. that are in mm. the positions that they're in because somebody gave them that opportunity. Yep. Somebody mm. gave them that job. Mm. But if you ask them, they got it because they earned it. Right. They earned like it. The they president just, of the United States of America. <laughs> they they right, like you know, you always hear those stories, those stories about those self-made millionaires like the Kardashians who's you know, but were they really self-made or did they start with a trust fund or you know, whatever? And so it's like the but if you ask them, they did it all on their own. And so they're kind of like they were built with this confidence that no matter what anyone tells you, you are amazing, you did everything. Mm-hmm. We're built with a much more village mentality, which I think is, you know, that again, that comes from our roots. Like there was no just one person. We, you know, when we're going back to the to the mother continent, we, we, we grew up in communities, we grew up in families. And so yes. we recognize that we did not get here by ourselves. We got mm-hmm. here because of my grandma prayed for me. My, my mom stayed up with me at night to study, Hello. you know, like that we, we supported each other. My sisters supported me, my friends supported me. Um, and, and so, but there's also that like, I'm the only person in my family who's a physician and everybody else is struggling financially. And so we, we do feel like this indebtedness and we do feel this guilt because we weren't able to, to bring everybody else along with us. Um, and sometimes that gets in the way because then we have this imposter syndrome, like, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't deserve to be here. But once again, we had to be better than most people to get here. So we should never be the ones with imposter syndrome. It should be that person sitting at the head of the table who right. should have never had that job. We should have that job. But, you know, that that's just unfortunately what we have to go through. So how do we turn that around for black and brown people? What What can we start doing for our children, with our children, with our friends, with our colleagues, so we can start to shift that mentality? So there's actually a lot of research showing that if you start young with kids emphasizing the beauty of the melanin in their skin or the excellence that comes with being black or just helping them to be proud in who they are, their ethnicity, their family lineage, their race, that has actually been shown to buffer the negative effects of racism. So racism is still a form of toxic stress. It can, it still can be an ace, but if we equip our children with the same confidence that they equip their children with, our children will handle it better. And so, you know, all these hashtags like black boy joy, you know, black girl magic, it's so much more than that because if we can infuse that into our children, they and they internalize that and they believe in their greatness, they can walk into a room and recognize that they deserve to be there. No one can no one can make them question that. I mean, like how many white men do we know that if you tell them they're not good enough, they would laugh at you because they, they have zero reason to doubt it. And if we're able to support so or I'll say, so the other night, well, last night, my sick I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old boy, and we we have the Disney Channel. And we were looking through movies and I was like, oh, you guys have never seen Snow White. Let's watch Snow White. And so they're talking about the movie and they were like, you know, her skin is, you know, white as snow. And my six-year-old was like, uh, like, why would that be so beautiful to have skin as white as snow? And he's like, we're going through the movie. He was like, mommy, are there any brown people in this movie? I was like, no. He was like, I don't want to watch this. I was like, okay, no problem. I was like, you know, he was like, let's watch the real Aladdin. He's like, there's brown people in that movie. Okay, enough said. And so like, my husband is like, oh my gosh, you're creating a monster. No, I'm creating a very self-confident, self-assured black man who recognizes the beauty and who we are, despite what everybody else tells him. Because I mean, like, Think about what was beautiful for us in the cartoons when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. What was the definition of beauty? It was never us. Not this. So, like the Snow White, Cinderella, all of them were like the complete opposite of who of who we are. And so society is constantly t- trying to tell us and our children that you're not good enough, that you're not beautiful. So we have to work equally as hard, if not harder, to give them the opposite message that you are incredible, that you are fantastic. So my, the wall, so we're, you know, we're homeschooling this year. We have an entire wall with pictures and quotes of black excellence and a part of their learning is learning about black excellence and it's working because like they are so excited to be black and you know and that I mean and that that's how you change it but we also need that as adults too like we have to remind each other how exceptional we are and we have to keep reminding each other because as soon as you walk into work you forget and so you just have to keep saying that like my friends will text me like you're doing it today just out of nowhere, just because. And then we and we do that all the time because we we need that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do that to each other a lot. Wait, would you say F? I think we do that to each other a lot. Like whenever um we we do a lot of Zoom calls, clearly. And <laughs> it is always a um, you know, just highlighting like yeah. I mean, Kelly's Kelly's hair is always on point. I mean, she it literally does go like she'll have like three different Three different hairstyles in one day. <laughs> we do have a built-in choir. We have a built-in choir. We do. We need that. 
yeah. you need that because how much is coming against us? Mm-hmm. We have so to, we have to have that. We have to drown out the noise with positivity. And if we, and again, like there's literally evidence, evidence that shows if we do that for our children, they can deal with racism in a way that it doesn't lead to that stress response. And mm-hmm. I will say my mom, and I think I learned it from my mom. She has never, I've, I've never heard her talk negative to a child. And so like, and, and I definitely get that from her. Like whenever I see a kid out, you have never heard me call a kid bad. You've never heard me call a kid. Um, they have issues, everything, everything. They, they're natural born leaders. If they um, are acting out, then they're independent thinker. Um, I mean, <laughs> right. But it is one of those things of, if you want to, if you want to find your child um, in jail, call bad once a, once a week. If you mm-hmm. want to see your child and, and visit them in a grave, call bad once a day. And mm-hmm. they'll, they'll be whatever you tell them they're going to be. They will. Self-perpetuating. Um, yeah. yeah. Dr. Nicole, before Kim wraps us up today, I do have one question and it goes to black excellence. So I feel like black excellence is double edged. It's a double edged sword because we're constantly striving for excellence and in a way are never allowed to just experience whether it's mediocrity or failure. And so what's your take on how black Americans can, well, hell, people of color in general, Mm -hmm. strive for excellence, but in the same vein, also allow yourself humanity and to experience those other pieces that make you human. I know. And that's especially when you are one of the onlys in a majority Mm -hmm. environment, our children are not given second chances in those environments. Like our, our children are not you know, forget like, you know, smoking weed, skipping school, drinking, suspended, expelled, you know, the Brock Turners of the world literally rape women and are given second chances and they're Hello. considered children. So Hello. our, you know, pre, we our black kids make up about 18% of preschool enrollment, but they're over 40% of preschool mm-hmm. suspensions and expulsions. <clears throat> so at three years old, they're already labeling our children as defiant and deviant. Mm-hmm. 70% of the referrals to law enforcement are black and Latino kids. And so, you know, they see our 13 year olds as 18 year olds. And so that, you know, a part of the challenge is explaining to our children that unfortunately we're not given the same leeway that they're given in our home. Yes, we can learn from our mistakes and we can support them and help them to realize it. But out in the world, you, you can't do what they do. And that's what my mother said. I went, I went to a, a private high school and the first day she was like, you are not them. You mm. cannot do what they, it was my first time being in an environment with mostly white people. It was like a two hour train ride. She was like, I don't want you acting up on the train. You are not them. You will not mm. be given those second chances. But when I came home, I understood that she was like, okay, well, what did we learn from this? Like you made a mistake, Let, let's figure out how, how to learn from it. And so, it, I mean, it is a double-edged sword. So the love and support and forgiveness we offer at home to give our kids that leeway, but also recognizing that outside the world is different. You took a two hour train ride to school? Yeah, every day for high school, <laughs> two hours each way. Wow, <laughs> that is commitment. That yeah, is commitment. I, I was not- Commitment, our trauma. Right, yeah, I, it was tough. It was, it was, it was tough. I got a scholarship and it was kind of like, this is your chance, this is your opportunity, you have to do it. And you know, it did, it opened up doors, but it was a completely different world. They didn't understand, like literally did not understand where I was coming from. I didn't know people. I didn't even like speak the same language. Like, you know, like, oh, do you want to come bowling in my house? 
you have a bowling alley in your house? Like, I don't even have a bowling alley in my neighborhood. <laughs> like, yeah. But I mean, it was, it was a, cause then, you know, you learn how to code switch. So. Well, that's yeah. the thing. Cause when I was in the second grade, um, I used to get bused across the city. So I would start at one school and they would bust me over to another school and then I would come back to my original school. And, and I say, you know, it's a benefit or it's trauma. I learned a lot at the other school, but it was again where I was taken out of a predominantly black school um, to now I'm one in a school full of white people. Mm-hmm. And we were reading things like um, Let the Circle Be Unbroken and, and um, uh, Tom Sawyer mm-hmm. and reading words that have the N-word in them. And I'm looking around and I'm like... <laughs> Y'all gonna just say it? <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to see who's I gonna mean, say it. Yeah, so... Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Kim. Kim. Well, listen, because I know we can go down that rabbit hole. We all went to predominantly white schools. And so we had some um, interesting perspectives in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I want to thank you, Dr. Nicole. This was good. I was preparing to cry my eyes out this entire episode um, because we know that talking about being broken can be really heavy, but you've made it um, so digestible for us this evening. So thank you for that. So we're going to move into our Be Bothered segment. Mm-hmm-hmm. But instead of being bothered, we're going to talk about how we cannot be bothered. Okay. So think about it, ladies. If you could talk to your younger self and just give some advice to promote their healing, we know that this brokenness. So, Kelly, you're crazy about comparing Ev, you talking about your ugly duckling syndrome or whatever. <laughs> Right. And me and my craziness about my friendships and relationships, it started somewhere and it probably started during that developmental period. Right. So Mm -hmm. what would you tell that young person to hopefully have a less broken adult? I can jump in. Jump Um, in, Kelly. I'm I'm speaking right now to 13 year old Kelly. Awkward 13 year old Kelly in her Esprit sweatshirts. I love Esprit. I don't know if y'all remember that brand or not, but I was all about the Esprit. Anyway, I would tell myself, you are stronger than you think you are. Your mistakes do not define you. You have a lot to contribute and don't let, don't dim your light for others. And I'd probably tell my 13 year old self to tape our greatest fear by Marianne Williamson on her bathroom mirror. If y'all were to come in my house today, you'd see quotes all over my bathroom. My, my husband thinks I'm a little crazy with the quotes because they are everywhere. Toothpaste, splatter, and all. They're up. <laughs> but even as an adult, I love the opening line of the poem. It's, it is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Mm-hmm. And so I would tell baby Kelly to just lean into that and live it. Wow. What about you, Ab? You know, um, I think I would tell, I would go back to my eight-year-old self and, um, and tell her that it's actually going to be okay. Literally. And, and it's as simple as that, that, um, yeah, everything, everything doesn't have to make sense right now. And it, and it never will necessarily make sense. And that's okay, too. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Dr. Nicole? Oh, you know what? That's that's such a good question. Um, you know, I, I had horrible, horribly low self-esteem as a kid. Um, I was like awkward. I was the tallest person in my class. I had like, it, my mother dressed me in the worst possible clothing she could find. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I never, I never thought I would be anything because I, I just didn't see myself as anything. And so in this, like, I, I, I think I would go back and like, and say like, 
you are you're smart and you're beautiful and you're capable and I probably wouldn't believe it but I would say that to myself um and I would you know I would also say that the you know the the mistakes, the mishaps, and you know, in the same way that, that Kelly said, like it doesn't define you, things are not over. Cause I was that catastrophic, like, oh my gosh, I failed this test, my life is over. Yes. I'm never gonna be anything. <laughs> like, I, yeah, you know, I wanted to be a doctor yes. since I can remember, like, oh my God, this is a C. It means like I'm a failure. Like it is okay. Like you breathe, you will survive, you will make it. You are smart. You just won't figure that out for a long time. But you know, it, it will be fine. And those mistakes will help you grow and will help you be a better person and a better mother and a better doctor and a better spouse. Because I understand, like I can relate to all of my patients who hate themselves Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, who look in the mirror and I'm like, I just see an incredible person, but they don't. So, but I get it right. Like I I completely understand it. So that, that experience has helped to shape me in a positive way. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I would tell, I would go back to sixth grade, Kim. Mm. Um, and I would tell her that she is enough. Mm. Just be yourself. You are enough. I was not the cool. So it's four girls. I have three sisters. So it's the Butler girls, right? And my sisters were always so cool and popular mm. and trendy. And I wasn't that. I was just a dork. And I just wanted to be cool, right? And I would try to change who I was. And that would make me all anxious and weird and awkward. And I would just say relax and be yourself. Be a nerd if you want to be a nerd. You don't have to read your books under the covers. You can let people see that you like books. Look at so you just, now, Kim. Look at I that. know. Look at, the glasses. Look at that home decor. Look at that. Look at that. So I can wear bangles <laughs> and my dork glasses and it's cute. So just find your comfortable. Find, find your space. Be yourself. Be your eclectic, weird, white girl, black girl, country girl, bougie girl. Be it all. It's all welcomed here and some and everyone loves you for it. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, BPAC, thanks for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe to all of our social media accounts, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Insta, Facebook. Tell us what you thought about today's episode in our comment section and let us know if there's another B word that you want us to unpack in the future. And also look in our comment section for Dr. Nicole's contact information and be sure to reach out to her if you have any questions. Remember, emotional health is physical health and you deserve to be healthy, happy, and complete. So until the next time, stay encouraged, stay safe, practice self-care, and let's keep unpacking. Thank you for unpacking another B Word with Kelly, Kim, and Ebony. Follow the B Word on Instagram at the B Word Unpacked and follow Goodstock Consulting on Facebook and YouTube. Learn more about Goodstock at www.goodstockconsulting.com.